Yama. Welcome to Blackademia, a podcast of yarns with First Nations academics of these lands now commonly referred to as Australia. I'm your host, Amy Tunig. I'm a Gamilaroi woman, and I begin by paying my respects to elders past and present, and to the lands on which this podcast is recorded and streamed. Listeners are advised that this podcast, its associated website and social media presence may contain the voices and or images of First Nations people who have since passed. Discretion is advised. This is the eighth and final episode of season one of Blackademia. I hope this season has been one of value and that listeners have enjoyed and learned from the yarn shared via this platform. When this week's guest, Dr. Lorraine Muller, asked to come and yarn on Blackademia, I thought, what a great way to round out this inaugural season, because Dr. Muller doesn't just have one, but has two PhDs. Dr. Lorraine Muller was awarded the University Medal when she graduated at the Division of Tropical Health and Medicine Ceremony in December 2017 with her second PhD. Lorraine identifies as Indigenous Australian, born on Kalkadung country, raised in the Torres Strait, and living on Girame country. Lorraine is an adjunct senior research fellow, School of Medicine and Dentistry at James Cook University, and adjunct research fellow, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies Unit at the University of Queensland. Yama Dr. Muller, your official bio is amazing. Before we get into your academic role though, could you please introduce yourself in terms of who's your mob and can you tell me a little bit about your family and or community life? I, my background's not as clear as I would like and I have but I, what I how I usually introduce myself is that I was born on Calcutta country I was raised in the Torres Strait and I've lived most of my life in Durame country in Cardwell and because of the space I'm working in is identity based and you see some of the issues with identity I'm actually quite comfortable to say that if somebody really needs to know then I'll I will know that I've got to answer that I do worry about so much information is being out there because in reality, some people will say I'm too white to be black and there's a lot of people, if I tried to be white, I would be called all sorts of names because they would not accept that I'm white. So I'm sort of stuck in the middle and to be perfectly honest, I don't give it anymore mm. and you get it in. Because, you know, when we talk about identity, the people who need to know, no, I've got a certificate of Aboriginality, I've got, yeah, and there's also... Like anyone, we all get our detractors, and some, you know, will try and point the finger. If I go out and publicly prove them wrong, then other people are going to get really hurt. Innocent people in the sort of family setup, and yeah, life's too short. Life's too short. So um, um, I think I opened my book with yeah, I was new, was a little bit different. Not white enough to be white and not black enough to be black. And I think sometimes we've got to sort of wind back on the identification as people, as it's being used against us. And we've seen that recently. And if somebody says, I'm not black, well, then they're never going to agree with it. So, yeah, the people who are important. I once jokingly told a, uh, an Indigenous colleague who I have the utmost respect for that that was it. I wanted to be... I was going to be, after I did my second PhD, my second PhD, I decided I was going to be, wasn't going to be black anymore, I'm white enough to be white, I'm going to be, I'm going to identify as white. And she threatened to bash me up and slap me around a bit in a choking way because I, uh, but I then progressed to say that I was going to be white, middle-aged male. 
because I reckon they had the easiest ride. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm not going to be accepted as um, and, and I'm in that fuzzy ground, and I think it's a dangerous ground that we've walked into um, recently, and we're giving a lot of people ammunition, and we're not firing back enough. Yeah, we've got people like Andrew Bolt, who has um, in one of his own writings says he identifies as Dutch, but nobody criticises him about identifying as Dutch. Mm. born in Australia. I think the identity things are really interesting in that way. So my mm-hmm. husband's German. Um, he came over here when he was about six or seven. Um, and even though, like, thanks to bullying and being pushed through an assimilations-type system, you know, you're not allowed to be anything other than English white in schools, um, he doesn't even have an accent anymore. When he says that his background is German, um, people don't question him. But I do think that given that we are on our lands and sovereign people, um, I think that there are places where it's really important for us to, you know, say who our mob is and to make those connections. And there's a reason that all of my episodes begin like that, because it's such a point of pride for us to be able to say that person is my mob and that we are joined and we are connected and so I think that the identity space is very complicated and obviously there's some very clever very complex writing in the academic space on identity you know work like um, Professor Bronwyn Carlson literally wrote a book on it Um, very, very highly acclaimed and very fortunate to work at the same university as Professor Carlson um, but I think that connecting via our mob is of great value and um, and also really important. So, but but I'm hearing what you're saying about it. It is, it is important, and in the right setting, you know. Um, I've had um, I, I'm not I don't balk at it, but I think I I thought you know it's about time to just take a stand. And I and I'm not as clear. I could say one mob, but I could be wrong. And you know. The, 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 the um, history has not been kind to me finding that specific mob. And with the um, sorry day just gone, it's, it's a very relevant thing. Not everyone does. And we run the risk of having... But it's, it's important and, and, and it's a point of envy for people who can't. Um, but rather than um, hide from it or shy away from it, I think we can, um, rather than having... The different classes, you know, some people are better class of black than others. Um, yeah, I think we need to build on our strength, which is that of unity and unifying, and um, that that inherent respect where everyone is is equal. And so I think there's, um, I'm taking a bit of a maybe a bit of a uh, overeducated stance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been there working in the, in the space and grappling with some of these issues for so long. And I think, you know, it's gotten to a point where, um, yeah. So, anyhow, yeah, that's probably the longest bio you've ever had. <laughs> no. There's, look, you're, not, you're not the only First Nations academic who, who doesn't introduce themselves by mob. Um, I know of at least two others, and, and you're right, of course, there are issues with identity and the fact that it does impact our health um, and, and that because of the nature of the colonial project, many people yeah. do have difficulties in gaining exact records or, um, you know, and in my family line, we've got more than Gomorrah mob, but Gomorrah mob is the line that I've been raised up 
knowing strongly and being connected to and and that's my maternal line and so that's the line I identify as um, but there are other mobs on both sides that um, I don't identify yet because I need to go and do that work and I need to make those connections before I claim them because I want them to obviously claim me back if I'm going to do that um, so Speaking of being very overeducated or you said something similar about in terms of the approach, you have two PhDs. It's a big deal to do one PhD, but you've done two. So I have to ask, why do you have two PhDs? Oh, it's, 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 it makes sense. It makes sense. And if you've, if you've seen my work, we'll go, I'll go backtrack a little bit because the first thing you ask about my family. Yes. And my, my immediate family, like I was um, very blessed. My, my mother died when I was six, so that sort of has also. Mm. Um, but I've, in my immediate family, my husband is also German descent. He's um, yeah, we're, we're not not young anymore. I've got four. I've had four children. I've uh, got six um, grandchildren plus a few extras because you can never have too many grandmas. And um, my oldest daughter. Um, you may have seen online, my oldest daughter died uh, about a year ago. I'm so sorry. And part of that is um, racism, racism within the health sector. Yeah. So, and now, and my husband's also had some health issues and being white male and, you know, um, he's, the, the difference in treatment is quite different, the different family that, that I have. But um, with my first PhD, initially I was going to do, um, I was going to carry on with my, my honours, which is on suicide prevention. Um, that's available online. And that was done with Gerrigan, the Aboriginal community there. And I was going to continue on with that. But when I started, then I got sort of convinced into doing, documenting our theory by a group of people who, um, a fellow students, yeah, we went through uni together, and also after witnessing uh, some of the very the best practice um, of, if, if you looked at it, you could say that's a European, yeah, the way the Western education writes it up. That's that theory in the sort of social work, the helping professions area. That's that's task centred. But when I saw it applied by a Wani woman who's highly skilled, it looked something totally different. Mm. It wasn't authoritarian, it wasn't, it was, but the way her and another colleague did it was so totally different, it was really eye-opening for me. So I thought mm. that's when they, they really firmed up to, do, to document it, the theory that informs Indigenous Australians and the health professions. And I use Indigenous Australians because if we don't use it, it's used against us, as we see with your Auntie Pauline. Um, Don't call it my honey, Pauline. <laughs> well, she she says she's indigenous, and I might be indigenous like a cane toad or something. But so if we, if we don't claim it and use it, it's used against us. But in in documenting the theory, I had so many people, and I had people. I, I formed. I had an expert panel because I thought, how the hell do I do this? You know, I'm yeah. going to get my head smacked if I. You know, it, it's. And so I was guided along the way with a group of people who formed an expert panel. Initially, I was stupid enough to call them a panel of experts. And they laughed and they <laughs> wouldn't talk to me about it. And then I, it was an expert panel and, and I wrote it up and I was guided and 
I had a lot of, uh, a really lot of support. I felt I was, um, and the book that came out of that it was always intended to be a book. Yeah. That was always, um, that, that was the, the purpose of it. People shared a lot of knowledge with me mm. for that purpose. Mm. And I, I felt really supported and I really grew in, like I, I knew beforehand, but I really grew as a person during that. I really felt I, I, um, I, I'm holding some significant knowledge mm. that's shared with me for that purpose. But one of the things that came out of my first PhD, and I was talking to some very clever people and some very experienced people, and some were highly educated in the Western sense, some were highly educated in the Indigenous area. People were saying to me, quite a few people said to me, you know, it's funny how we always asked, we always got to share our knowledge. Nobody's ever bothered to, to think whether or not we have any questions to ask non-Indigenous people, mm. but have been too polite to ask. Mm. So they said, you should do that as your second PhD. First of all, I took it as a bit of a joke, but I thought my husband wasn't well, I was in Cardinal, we had some gas, and I thought, that's a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. Why not? We're, and we're, we're very fortunate, you know, a, a, a series, a few things have happened in our life. Um, with my husband and I, you know, we've got 15 acres in Carville. It's only, it's only humpy and it got fogged, stuck by Nassie. But it, we don't owe any money. And the place we got in Townsville, we, um, we don't owe any money on it. So it's just a series of very fortunate events, you know. And not many people can say that. Mm. So I thought, well, you know, why not do a second PhD? Sounds like a good idea to me. And so I started and I found two people who were silly enough to supervise me for a second PhD. <laughs> they, that, that's a big thing, you know. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking like, um, you know, the whole too many cooks in the kitchen type thing, you wouldn't be the same type of person coming in for a second PhD because it's not your first time around. So I can imagine that people would be like, what, what is our actual role here? What can we actually help you with? But there's also the, um, um, it had to be sufficiently different. Mm. And, and the uni was quite interesting. It was quite good because, like, I have a, a certain amount of hesitation with JCU. However, Helene Marsh and the, and the, the um, research area, they, yeah, they, they said, yeah, go ahead, you know. So that was pretty great. I'm the first person to have graduated with two PhDs from JCU. And so, they haven't tweaked yet that I'm an Indigenous female and the first person to graduate with two PhDs. So there's three things that I want to just bring up out of what you've just said. So the first thing for listeners, um, which they may not know, is that you can do a PhD and basically when you're done, it can just sit on a shelf as a thesis, not be published and not really be accessible for consumption. And when the knowledge is about First Nations people, this is a real problem where it's seen that people just go in, extract our knowledges to get themselves a PhD and then they bugger off. So um, some people intentionally publish all the way through or they write with the intention of turning it into a book, which is what you're saying you've done with your first one. And so now that's a book which people can access via libraries or purchase. Um, The second thing was I had a question. Um, So... Listeners might not know this, but in Australia, unlike with your undergraduates and your master's degrees, 
you don't get a hex debt for a PhD, whereas in other countries that's not the case. So you don't have to pay to do the study of a PhD. The government covers that because there's not that many people who do PhDs. So my question is, do you get a second PhD covered or or not? Did you have to pay for that? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, that's, that's cool. You <laughs> little beauty. <laughs> so that's really, really that's cool. It. And of course, unlike... I was just going to say, unlike with, say, an undergraduate degree where you're gaining skills that you take out into a workplace, with a PhD, you're actually producing an original portion of work, which then can then benefit society or be shared with the community. And then the third thing I just wanted to say is that JCU stands for James Cook University. There you go. (laughs) Yes. And isn't that an auspicious day? Uh, I work at Macquarie University, so you're telling yes, me. What's today? What's today? <laughs> right. So this episode will go to air Wednesday, the uh, the nineteenth of February, but we are recording it on the day that James Cook was famously killed by the Hawaiians for being a very bad, no good person. Um, and so what a fabulous day to be discussing the that your degrees are through James Cook University. Because, um, of course, so many places, including the region I live, are named after these people who really, really did quite terrible things. So, is James Cook University where you are a adjunct senior research fellow? Yes, uh, with the School of Medicine and Dentistry, where I did my second PhD, because it, it is sort of related to health. Like this, what is about non-Indigenous Australians that they don't, work on closing the gap. Mm. What is it that racism is still so endemic in, yeah? And so that I had to, because there is a, set, a, a, a different focus. And I must admit the School of Medicine and Dentistry has been really quite amazing and, and supported. And because they kind of think it's kind of handy and um, and they like my me and they like my work, that I'm an adjunct there. At the moment, I'm, I'm not working, as I think I told you, my husband's on my husband's care. If I can find the right kind of work that fits around that, that's fine. The, and as you know, not all unions, not all the same in different no. areas are different. Yeah. And um, I've had more support in some areas than others. Uh, but I'm also an adjunct with UQ, with Brennan okay. Fredericks. So can you tell me, what does being an adjunct mean for people who don't work in this space what does being an adjunct mean to me um and i'm not like i'm an accidental academic as i've said that's <laughs> uh, what everyone says all the black academics call themselves accidental academics <laughs> I, I dropped out of high school and design high at year nine yep and then i returned to formal studies to do my undergrad so I went to, yeah but um for me it means that I can get access to, um, yeah, a bit of casual work. Yep. But so I've got access to uh, easy access to um, casual work. If I want to, I've got access to the university facilities. I've got the university email and, and so on. I've got if I'm writing something like I recently wrote a, a an open letter, and I'll, I'll put the connections there because it is relevant and. Um, whether it makes them sit up and take notice or cringe, I don't know. They haven't thought of me and said, you're a naughty girl, because I, I think what I said was done respectfully and sensibly. 
I can supervise students. I'm supervising a student. Um, wow. I'm su- uh, well, I'm co-supervising a student at James Cook at School of Medicine and Dentistry. And um, also, and this is a, it's a bit of a funny one, the way they did it at Flinders University, but that's not, I don't know that that's necessary to the adjunct. James Cook was a bit slack in sort of tying that up. Oh, for no money, but, um, yeah, so I can pick and choose there. And with um, Bronwyn, I've got to um, see yeah, what, what's available there and, and if they need me for guest lectures and things like that. It's, so there's, it, there's an affiliation and it's um, in some ways it's good. It's a bit of a recognition. Like I would have, um, it would have been a lot better career-wise had I started my studies when I was your age. Well, I'm, I'm very young compared to other First Nations academic women particularly in that I went from high school to university, I've had my children while I've studied, I've got, you know, a couple of years working in education, I've come back in, I've done my master's predominantly online while juggling parenting responsibilities, um, and then was an RA, a research assistant for a little while before then, like you, I call myself an accidental academic. I didn't even realize an academic was a job. Otherwise it absolutely would have been my goal much earlier, but I'm only 32 and I'll have my PhD when I'm 33. And that is very young for a first nations person to have it. Um, but it's also, but then I, I, I'm still very much ticking a lot of those other boxes in terms of had my family very young, all of the other things that we juggle. But that, that, the fact that we start later means that we experience a lot of differences compared to non-Indigenous academics, even in terms of the amount of super that we finish with. It's really, I mean, oh, the, yeah. I mean, this is what my PhD is on, so it's something that interests me a lot. Um, but back to the, being an adjunct. So it sounds like, so where an academic like myself, where I'm in a full-time role, so I have course convening and course content development um, responsibilities and um, research responsibilities, but I don't have a PhD yet, so I don't supervise and I'm on committees and things like that. So I have this set workload that I have to tend to each week. Um, It sounds like an adjunct has a different level of flexibility. It's like an ongoing relationship where you can still supervise students. So they gain, the university gains benefit benefits financially from doing that obviously from having you on board and you gain by having access to things like the academic email and being able to affiliate yourself with the institution which does have clout in certain ways um I've certainly experienced that I mean people listen more to me as an academic than before I was an academic even though I'm basically saying the same things um and so that's really interesting so adjunct sounds like an affiliation and a relationship but with a different level of flexibility to, say, a full-time academic who's stationed within that university, which is well, great because you're a carer. Yeah. And it, if, if so, for people who are retired, mm. they will become... Also, for people who leave one university to go to another, they'll become an adjunct. So when they write, they still have that um, those connections and the, you know, some of the, the supervision that they've been doing. So it, it, it's sort of all about connections. Um, not that, um, you know, how we like to have everything interconnected. It's almost like you're the auntie, you know, you can be called in to, to do the power. Um, the mainstream academia, um, of course, it's very individualistic. Yeah. And, um, 
they operate slightly differently, even though in some ways are very much um, similar in that they, they like to keep those connections, particularly people who are, are of use to them. And mm. who um, and so there's a bit of a, a two-way street there. Yeah. It's, it, it, it works. I, I hadn't really, I didn't understand a lot of it um, when I started. And when I started my second PhD, I was an adjunct with School of Social Work, but then James Cook, yeah, I think he can only be adjunct with one or maybe the other, I'm not sure. That's their internal stuff. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, life's short. Some things I used to worry about when I was younger, um, I find it's just not worth it. I've got um, other things to worry about. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you've been in the academy for a while now because, I mean, two two PhDs, that, that, that takes a bit of time as well and you're an adjunct and you do all these different things. Um, can you tell me what's your favourite part of being a black academic? The overall favourite part, I would have to say, is being able to speak. Uh, with my, first, my first PhD was definitely a, a real sort of standout for me, talking to so many wise people and being mm-hmm. entrusted yeah. with that information. I think I, I, I just like chasing knowledge and I like um, I, I, I like that and it's one thing I, I do miss sort of for myself because all of my studies, all of my studies have been by distance education, which is, is another sort of point of um, being unusual, I suppose, but I've um, always been a little bit different. Ah, so all of it's been off campus for you? All of, all of my undergrad, my postgrad, all of it's off campus. I think people would really like to hear about that experience because there are if a lot I, of people that's their only option. If I had the times that I did on campus, like the workshops, I reckon if I had the level of racism was just quite alarming. Yeah. If I had to do it on campus, I don't know that I would have completed. Yeah, okay. Because it's um, it, all of mine was by um, distance. The... Um, but all of it, yeah, initially it was sort of everything turned over the mail and, and postage and all that because well, Cardinal still don't have really good internet. But it's, um, yeah, I found that I could do that, like I could do that while I was um, at home with my family, caring responsibilities. You know, I started studying when I realised that, that I, th- I thought I was turning 40. I miscounted that. It wasn't quite. I thought, oh, empty nest syndrome. My babies are all leaving home. So, um <laughs> Yeah, uh, was tied up and said I was enrolled, and um, yeah, I kept studying until I forgot, and I forgot to stop. <laughs> so your babies were leaving home, and you thought now's the time to start. So is that when you did your first undergraduate degree as well? Yeah, yeah, that's when I started. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think though. Um. I think I started in, I would have to double check, but my youngest daughter is 36 this year. So, yeah, I've been studying for a while. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, I thought, well, I started and then I did the first two and because I was studying by distance, some of the, I was only going to get, initially only going to do the social work degree, but then... I didn't have enough to, you know, you couldn't do all the subjects and, and at a semester, so I ended up um, 
doing extras and, and sort of if JC was doing that type of thing, I would have majored in mental health. And uh, and so I ended up with a double degree Yeah. when I graduated. And I did honours in that as well, a, a, a year-long honours, which is a little bit complicated as well. So Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I thought somebody, one of my markers who I put in for remark on, <laughs> she was such a... Um, she was so she was so obviously uh, bigoted, and she started off going so far, and then she started calling me like Marlene. You no. know, my name was the top of my paper, and so I put in for a remark, and I got for instead of a pass, I got a distinction or something. And, wow! Uh, but then uh, another person, you know, took that and she said, "Well, you just have to do your PhD whenever you say anything. If you criticise any." any academic standard response I, I got was, well, you just have to do that for your PhD. And when it came to theories and in social work that are sort of so very individu- individualistic and and I'm quite comfortable in saying that because I've got a PhD in mainstream <laughs> on Indigenous Australian culture yes. that is so very white Australian. Yeah. Um, it's very individualistic and I, when I criticise it, the response was, well, you just have to do your PhD on. If you think you can do better, you just have to do your PhD on. The same person is not still not using my PhD in the theory subject in social work. Oh, no. It's still not it's... accepted. You know, you've seen my book. It is there. Our theory is plain to see. Yeah. It's still not being accepted no. by no. non-Indigenous mainstream Australian culture. No. That's really hard that you went and got the PhD on what they were like, we'll get the PhD in it then and prove us wrong, and then they still won't use the work because it was never really about you having the PhD. It was just about being dismissed. Yeah, but like I say, it's, it's never going to be enough. No. Yeah, I went for a social work position and I was I was almost instant knockback from a, a uni that sort of specialised in distance ed, so I'm pretty qualified there, and almost instant knockback. And I'd just finished my second PhD. And the response was that I wasn't qualified. Thanks. Yeah. Um, the the thing is, though, we need to take it up. And I really, I really like the way that the younger academics, you know, um, are taking the fight up on Twitter and things like that. Like I have a look at some of those. They go, man. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll drag you. Oh, they're ready to flog some of the young ones. Like, but I think you know we have social media. I, I would not, and I've said this before, I, I wouldn't have gotten through my first year as an academic if it wasn't for the support of other black women academics on things like social media, particularly Twitter, because you just feel so shut down and cut down and the violence of what you're reading to get your work done is destructive to your soul. Like, it's horrible. It you is. read paper after paper written by non-Indigenous people that de- and they're dehumanising us. It's positioned as something about our people and our communities and you read it and you're like, I don't, I don't recognise any of this. And all I'm feeling is just pain and grossness and it's horrible. You have a physiological response to it. But just taking it back to your comment about distance education. So, you know, I know that there are a lot of people because of carers' responsibilities. I mean, I was one of them. My master's was via distance and I drove down for block periods. Um, and then obviously, you know, because it's in teaching, I went and did 
pracs and placements, but my actual study component was all done online. Um, and I needed that. I was a single mum with a baby um, and there's no way I could have gone in and done the regular structure of university at that time. But I know that people have these concerns, whether they live geographically removed or they've got carers responsibilities, they're worried that it'll be so hard online or that the distance will be too difficult. But something you've highlighted is it actually gave you that space and that breath away from the racism and the violence of the institution itself in a way. It did. And and one of the advantages of the older style was that if I knew I had something coming up, I could work three weeks ahead. Yeah. But I, I must admit, um, I had a really good tutor. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a, used to teach my kids in primary school. Oh. But she, she's a grammar Nazi, um, a non-Indigenous woman, but very, very, um, yeah, totally, totally wonderful woman. And she, um, she helped me uh, master the art of grammar, and she never ever, never ever edited any content. But my 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 first PhD, I think, was a very healing, and, and it gave me a lot of um, confidence. And like spirituality has always been a big thing for me. It's uh, something that occurred, and going looking for answers. Um, and this is part of the whole identity thing too, which is why I don't want to go into it in too much detail because otherwise you get copycats. You know, you get the new ages and you get the the, the holy rollers and the the nut jobs. But talking um, to people in the community um, and people I interviewed, this is the the, the first PhD in some ways on this wrote itself. But the actual writing was hard, you know, and mm. especially only finishing grade nine. Design. I really felt the lack of grammar. And my my kids can write full sentences. You know, I need that squiggly line underneath the mm-hmm. um, on, on the computer screen. The people I, I interviewed, you know, that, that was really a um, I, I had like, all of these people holding my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, had people like Mark Wenatong, who was on who wrote a nice blurb on the back of my book. Um, he was on the expert panel, and every time I bump into him, or uh, he'd be saying. Where is it? Come on, hurry up. Where, where, where. Oh, no, when's it going to be finished? I want to see that. You know, I need that. Get it done now. Hurry yeah. up. You know, so I had all of these people um, backing me. Yeah. And um, when it comes to confrontational stuff and some of it, it rattled, you know, some might have to sort of take a, a step back and, and you think, yeah, this is um, incredibly hard. Like Bonnie Robertson, who wrote the, um, if you haven't read it, worthwhile getting it, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women's Task Force on Violence Report. Um, and I sort of her, and she said one instance that she wrote up, that I wrote in my, in my book, um, it took her to the point of madness, you know, just that, that empathy, that feeling of this pain. Mm. The, um, and I think that is a real issue. Yeah. For black academics. Yeah. We can't just read and think, oh, that's interesting. No, it's, it's personal for us. It's personal, but it's the personal becomes the spiritual, becomes the identity, becomes, yeah, it's all intertwined. And you can't, um, and the people from Yarrabah, the woman from Yarrabah explained that we literally feel it. It's not just, yeah, um, it's deeper than, it's, it's, it's more complex than um, 
than the empathy they talk about. Yes. Well, when you consider things like cell memory as well, I think that it is a different experience for First Nations people, our blood memory, our cellular memory, and what we carry with us when we read these things. It is experienced differently. But the, the, that pain, um, that you're feeling another's pain, that's very, very relevant. And with the women which took that, they were saying some women from down near South Wales, Victoria, when they were talking to the women from Yarrabah, they, they thought, because they were talking about, um, in, a, in a women's circle, talking about child sexual abuse. And because the women from, from up north were sort of very you know, emotional and, and they thought that, that the people leading the show thought that all of those women had been sexually abused. And they said, no, it's not that at all. It's just we feel, when we hear that person talking, we can feel their pain, you know. Mm. And so it was just just finding the words to be able to explain that yeah. can be tricky. Yeah, yeah, that the way it's communicated, like when something happens to a child or a person in our community, that's our child. It doesn't have to be the person that we birthed we still like love them as our children like our nephews and the people in our community yeah and then that's that's a big cultural difference so then explaining that in a way articulating that in a way that then isn't going to be misconstrued particularly in an academic sense where things get whatever we say is going to be misconstrued as i can yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, one of the um, tips which I was, which someone shared with me, a non-Indigenous person um, who's helped me a lot with my writing um, when I was working at Newcastle University over in their School of Education there, um, she said, overtly address it. If you think this statement or this point could be easily misconstrued or wantingly, overtly address it. Just put it in there. This might be how someone would read it. However, here is why that is not appropriate. And I really, I thought, oh, wow, like that's something so simple. Um, but it's been such a valuable tip for me. Um, and, yeah, and, and that's so good. And also if somebody's reading it right, you know, it can be hard to take feedback sometimes. Yes. You think, oh, but I learned, because of my trusted friend who with the um, teaching me grammar is if obviously if, the, if, they don't, if they see a problem, I'm not explaining it well enough. I've yes. Better. Yes, and how much better it is to get criticism in private than have yes. it published and be ridiculed pub- uh, like publicly. That's what I say to myself. And my supervisors, because um, you know, you'll know when you send them your drafts, you're like, I don't, I don't want people to see my stuff before it's polished. Um, and so I, I try to get it to the brink of done before I let them look at it, and then they'll send it back to me and be like, you forgot to give it a title. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> that's such a dumb thing to do. But, you know, it's a really silly mistake to make. Um, but that's why we have supervisors, because they can point out that I had forgotten something really simple because you can't see the forest through the trees kind of thing. You know, you get so yeah. into it. Um, but that's the beauty of, of having people who, who mentor us, which leads me to, um, you know, in the lead up to creating this podcast, I asked Twitter what they'd like to hear about from Black Academics, and the following questions came from that thread. Well, I think we answered one of them um, from Alice, who said her champion supported mentored me. The whole bloody mob did um, <laughs> in my first PhD. Even my second PhD, though, annoying in my second PhD. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd go to help. And I said, no, you don't understand. You know what you're doing. You know? We've got other things to do. You know what you're doing. And I thought, yeah. So that's that one. Um, how to start a PhD, but dec- I don't know. I don't know how to say that word. Well, I, I don't know that it's actually a word. I think Scott made it up. Decol, 
decolonially. <laughs> well, I in in my book you'll see that I used I was sort of yeah, you know, I was told I had to get a framework and then I heard the um Lanui talking about um stages of decolonization. Now he was really quite inspirational from a, a slightly different point and I altered it to come up with the six stages and the six six the additional six the initial stage I put in to bring it up to six is um, the one of healing. You know, the, it's, it's where healing and forgiveness came in. But I think the, the stages, I use them in my second PhD as well. Mm. And it's, um, I think it really helped having those sort of a, a, a conceptual framework of um, we start and, and the, the period of mourning, like we were talking about, that pain and 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 the and that understand that period of mourning needs to take place was really important, mm. and um, and then that that healing and forgiveness, and then moving on to the other stages. It, it's it's sort of a uh, not a lineal type person, but they all make sense. And in my second PhD, I used the same framework, and a woman who. Um, a young woman, young woman academic, non-Indigenous woman, she saw some comment online and so she volunteered to be part of my research and she came up after doing the interview and um, interestingly, all of those people that thanked me for the interview, everyone I interviewed for my second PhD thanked me for interviewing them, oh. which is a bit odd. <laughs> um, but this woman, Reagan, she proposed that the six stages that non-Indigenous people go through when they... Um, start engaging with decolonisation. So you've got the six stages of decolonisation, but then non-Indigenous people have got six stages they engage with as they go through it, and that makes a lot of sense too. I'm actually hoping that um, I'll get my second PhD published. It's under consideration at the moment um, because it, it's sort of it's like the bookends. You know, one is Indigenous looking at Indigenous. Um, of theory that informs Indigenous Australian practices, and second is looking at mainstream Australia and how they interact with and 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 you know, the, some of these issues surrounding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But there should decolonisation is an easy sort of uh, framework to to work with. It's something that um, that decolonisation is, is a bit overused. It's yeah. sort of used. Yeah, you know, the term. Yeah. Yeah, but the, the framework's really good. And Damien Bonson, um, mm. I don't know if you know Damien. Yeah. He's, Does he um, do Black he, Rainbow? He, yeah. hey? Black Rainbow? Yeah. 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 And he said, oh, yeah, do you mind if I use it? And it's, it, it's there to be used. That's just why it was shared. Everything in that book is there to be used. It, it, it's, you know, um, and so he uses the, the stages of decolonisation for the work he's doing and... I, th- I think it's wonderful. I've had other people have had uh, a non-Indigenous person, another Indigenous scholar and a non-Indigenous um, person um, I've been working with has used that to guide their working respectfully in uh, research that involves uh, Aboriginal Islander interests, you know, um, and she's ho- she'll hopefully finish her PhD soon. But... The other thing that with that working de- de- 
in a decolonising manner. I can't get my tongue around it. Um, something's up right, but I can't say. Something's they've got to use spell check to write. But the issue with um, operating in a way that is de decolonising, particularly for non-Indigenous scholars, but also Indigenous scholars, is to look at who you're referencing. Mm. Like this PhD student that I'm with, I said to her, you know, you've got a why are you referencing all this non-Indigenous random sort of, you know, there are people, and I've almost knocked back a, a PhD that I marked because there's no Indigenous scholars. They, they overlooked Indigenous Australian yeah. scholars who were expert in the field. Yeah, yeah. And I basically sent it back and I had enough, uh, I had all sorts of things happening in my life and I said, yeah, wasn't for that I'd find this person. Yeah. But this needs to be fixed. So, and, uh, you yeah, in the students I do encounter, I say, look at your reference list and... Um, if need be, email that person and say, are you Indigenous? Are you Indigenous Australian if you're not sure? Yeah. yeah I did that to one of the people. I thought, yeah. Uh. i say family members are, but when she, she wrote back, she was very happy to explain it, that no, she wasn't. It, no, she, you know, and so uh, it depended on how I was able to reference her. Um, uh, you know, she's a staunch non-Indigenous ally. Uh, yeah, and that's how she said she wants to be referenced. And you think that's respectful, but it's also acting in a decolonising way. Mm. Mm. And book, of course, my book, my book is a bit confronting. Some people are a bit taken aback by it because I write us and we are the normal, and I name non-indigenous people. So when I talk about us or we. I'm talking about Aboriginal Islander people. Yeah, yeah. And for a lot of academics, it's sort of beaten out of them. Some really good academics, you can see, it's 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 sticking point in their writing. Yeah, well, they're not like the common way of doing it is positioning white as normal, and yeah. everyone else as other, that. and that's very that's it's a very disruptive move. I, I do the same thing because I love it when I read it that way because it reads differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when people write about our things enough that you think they might be mob and they don't say that they're not, I really question that behaviour. I think that there's an element of lying by omission or passing, you know, because they, in terms of when they say, for example, that they're using Indigenous research methods or, or these kinds of language or they're talking about First Nations people, um, without ever identifying themselves, I, I don't like that. I think that it's really inappropriate. And well, this this person and her, admittedly her writing was a bit earlier, but asking her point blank was useful. Yes, and sometimes you have to. Um, but I think usually if you have to go looking, the answer's no. And I think there's an there's an element for me of real discomfort when non-indigenous people really like it's almost like black cladding, you know, they join committees and they write to the space and they talk like they are. Um, I've even had, I had a non-Indigenous academic come up to me at an event that I thought was only for Indigenous academics and assume I was white and started giving me tips on how to get in with Aboriginal people. 
And then I realized they thought I was white, so maybe they were white, and then I had to ask them, and then they were very embarrassed. And I realized they would never have talked to me that way if they knew I was mob. And I thought, that's dodge. Like, that made me so uncomfortable. And so when I read that, like, when I read that they're writing to the space and positioning themselves as expert about our matters and talking about our identity... See, that's what I don't like, that they're analysing and pulling apart and talking about our culture and our identity without ever positioning themselves, which positions them as normal. It says whatever they are, whoever they are, they are normal and everything else is for analysis, is to be objectified and and pulled apart. And and so for me, when I read that and the person hasn't positioned themselves, um, you know, with a bio or whatever, I, I feel very uncomfortable with their work. But there's, there's, there should be a few markers, and it'd be pretty hard to explain. But you probably know them, of who is or isn't an Indigenous writer. And um, this is one of the reasons I sort of position myself like it would be far. Uh, I would have far more chance of getting employment and getting, you know, accolades if I was prepared to say I was not Indigenous, but I've been with the mob because that's how it works. Yet, um, and as I worked through, you know. When I was sort of farming and right, yeah, it 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 didn't it, it wasn't a big issue. Even though I remember some joker told me that it didn't matter how fair my skin was, it'd always be nothing but a black chin. <laughs> and I, yeah. um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's easier to um to 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 say clearly, but and I know when I write, uh, when when you see indigenous writers, especially one supervisor who I won't anything more about but you can see who their students were because they talk about aboriginal aboriginal people as they and mm-hmm. them and mm-hmm. aboriginal people mm-hmm. and you know th- this is not how these people normally write or talk and i felt quite sad for them and so in in writing about um us and we as normal my first one one of my supervisors, well, both my supervisors, my first PhD. Yeah, they, but well, all my supervisors have been non-indigenous. And somebody had to go at me. I think she wanted me as a student, but she had to go at me. She said, "Oh, how come you don't have any indigenous supervisors?" I said, "I need how to learn how to learn how to write a PhD. I don't need to learn how to be black. Yeah, mm. that's what the supervisor for to help me with a PhD. Yeah, the rest is." And I thought that was. That was a um, supervisor who I realised has supervised students, and they all say the average people, they and them. Mm. I think it's it's a bit sad, and, and the politics is weird, and the scrambling for the lucrative space as a non-indigenous person, expert on Aboriginal people, yeah, is quite high, yeah, and it's quite rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing; they can make money, reputation on being someone who writes about us and then they can go home and it can just be their job. You know, I mean, that might sound a bit unfair to some people, but, you know, that's one of the big differences is the work we do when we're, when we're talking and writing about our community. If we do the wrong thing, we will be held to account by our community. And that's not something that non-Indigenous people also face. Um, and so I think that's interesting. So with with Scott's question about how to start a PhD but decolonially, 
some of the things I've heard you point out is, well, firstly, um, you know, people might not realize that a lot of the PhD, including how you go about it. So not only what the question is, but how it's framed, how you ask it, how you go about answering it. All of these things are kind of up for grabs. You know, that framework, a lot of that's up to you. And if you're doing it for the first time, there's additional work that needs to be done. But like you're saying, you took an established Indigenous approach and you added to it and you worked with that. And then on top of that, you've recognised that the work that you did in altering or adapting the existing framework for your needs has then been made available to other members in the community, including Damien. Um, And so then it's also creating something that's of value to our communities outside of the institution. And then you went on to do a second PhD where you did flip the gaze and rather than studying First Nations people, you studied non-Indigenous people and their approaches. And so I think that answers that really well um, in terms of things that you can do to give yourself or your approach that decolonial lens and approach. Yeah. The other thing too is that and the other thing too um, I realised that besides talking to, to Papa Lainui, um and the um, I, I come across a just a thing online and I, so I followed up and I chased this guy down he's a old white guy from America but he wrote about the methodology the meta theory informs what methodology is used so we're talking about indigenous methodology, research methodology, it can only be informed by our worldview. To try and fit it into somebody else's worldview Mm. um, would be extremely difficult. So the worldview informs what methodology you're going to use and the way you use it. And so to talk about that, and some non-Indigenous academics think that the worldview and the... that that's sort of a lot of fluff and or, um, self uh, sort of self promoting, yeah. It's um, but it's very very relevant. And if they were honest with themselves, they would have to acknowledge that their worldview informs what they do. Of course, yes. Yeah. But that myth of there being objective is yeah. such an important part of the lies that go into propping yeah. up white supremacy in in their you know, in quotation marks, right to examine us and look down on us. It's this idea that they're objective, but we are influenced by our worldview. When, of course, they're influenced by their worldview, their capital, their social conditioning, their experiences, and also the ramifications of their research, which arguably for them, there's none. If they, you know, if their research goes on to be used against First Nations people, they know it'll never be used against them. Yeah. And the idea that their objective is, it's just nonsense. No one in academia is. When you look at non-Indigenous people, their only way of looking at the world is clear with the methodology. And when they try to, to engage using Indigenous methodologies, then they have to learn. And some of them do learn very well, but it's it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great um, time of healing and um, and maturing. Mm. 
Mm, and I think that shows in their work, don't you? Like when you read someone's work and they're non-Indigenous and they know how to appropriately position themselves, the rest of the article or the book or whatever it is for me as a reader is far more comfortable because I know how to position them and locate where their words and where their knowledges are coming from. And yeah. I do find that that work reads with greater maturity, with a greater sense of responsibility and care for the word gifts that they've been entrusted with. And, and I really appreciate that. You know, I, I worry sometimes that, you know, you hear people say, oh, well, it's just too complicated. I just won't get involved. I just won't touch it. And I think, well, if that's how you feel good, don't touch it. Go away. But for... Uh, that's one of the stages of engaging with decolonisation. Yes, exactly. And for some people, that's where it stops. But yes. for those who come back and... and work through those feelings of discomfort, um, I think that the work can be really good and that's where we get great accomplices. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of my supervisors, um, and it's always a two-way learning street. Yeah. And she had to go, anyhow, I'll, I'll edit it a little bit, but she was presenting to a group of Indigenous people and before she left, I said to her, this, you must remember this and be very clear. And she could, tried to get out of it, but the uni wouldn't let her get out of it. And so she, and, and she stuck by that standpoint. She talks as a non-Indigenous person trying to work respectfully with Aboriginal Islander people. Yeah. And, you know, it stood her in good stead. You probably yeah. possibly read some of her work. Um, yeah, it, it's, and I thought, well, at least she listened to me. Yeah, she's a good student there. Yeah. Um, and but it, it, it's a complex area. When it comes out to um, starting PhDs and working uh, in a decolonising way, I think in all honesty there's got to be that acknowledgement of where you are, even to a certain degree the spirituality, even though we don't like to talk about spirituality for a number of reasons because it will be used against us still bastardised or, you yeah. know, Yep, appropriated sold, hey? sold. <laughs> I, I think if people do it right they know if it's going to be done right you know yeah and you've got to study those you've got to but people have got to make sure they don't do that um don't blow into the white way of working yeah yeah because that's how um the supervisors are and yeah. i think you've got to remember most indigenous students have non-Indigenous supervisors. Yeah. Because well, most Indigenous... Yeah, they're, we're, yeah, we're less than 1% of the workforce. So it's yeah. not, yeah, it's statistically quite difficult. But for... you, you, like I told myself, well, yeah, at the uni, I said, yeah, I know how to be blank. I need to know how to write a PhD. You had and an I expert could... panel though, didn't you? Huh? You You had an expert panel to guide you oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I think for the listeners is another really important point. Um, you might not be able to get Indigenous PhD supervisors, but there are other ways of gaining that support. And you do have a right to push back if your supervisors are trying to push you into an approach that you're not comfortable with, and having an expert panel can really help with that. So, um, so thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge with us, Lorraine, Dr Muller. Well, thank you. That's a wrap on Season 1 of Blackademia. I'd like to thank every single guest and listener who helped make this podcast possible. If you'd like to know more about Dr Muller's work or any of the guests from this season, please head to the website www.blackademia.com. Stay safe, 
stay strong in culture, and hopefully we'll be back for season two. Yalu!